start preaching. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. If you can, stand with me, please. Isn't it great to be saved this morning? Isn't it great to be able to come together to worship our great God and our Savior? Colossians 3, verse 5. We've been here for, not quite forever, but almost. Paul says, Mortify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So to sum it up, the Bible says, live right. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And we thank you for your word. Speak to our heart and challenge us. And God, speak to the hearts of those who are lost especially. Draw them to you in Jesus' name. And we'll give you the praise. Amen. You can be seated. We've been preaching the last several weeks on our new life in Christ. And if you're born again, you're experiencing that new life. But then it dawned on me that if there's a new life, there must have been an old life. And so the meaning of the old life is simply the fact that we lived a sinful life. There was a time when our lives were characterized by sin. It meant living a life that did not glorify God. It meant living a life that wasn't pleasing to God. And the Bible says when we live that kind of life, we are living in darkness. And the scripture also tells us that whoever lives that kind of life is of the devil. Now, they may claim to be a Christian. They may claim to be righteous. They might say, well, wait a minute, preacher, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I said some words to a preacher and shook his hand and I repeated certain words and I'm saved and and it's okay. If you're living in sin, it's not okay. If you're not living right, you're not okay with God. So you can claim all you want. But if you're living in darkness, the Bible says those folks are children of the devil. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, the Bible gives us some characteristics of that old life. Here's what they are. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I doubt you were counting, so I did it this week. Paul lists 17 things here. But he also wants us to know that list is not all-inclusive because he says, and such like. In other words, any other things that fall in this type of lifestyle. And by the way, if you look in there, 
Somewhere you're on that list when you were unsaved. And by the way, if you find yourself there now, you better run to God. Because the Bible says that anyone who practices those kind of lifestyles, look at all of them now. The Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that being said, there was a need for change in our lives. There's a need for every person to change from that old life to the newness of life in Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, the Bible refers to that change as becoming dead to sin. Romans 6, 11. Paul says, likewise, reckon yourself, ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do I have anybody here who's alive to Jesus Christ this morning? Amen. If you are, you're dead to sin. And that means that anyone who has forsaken that old life is dead to sin And now that person is living a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life has changed. And for anyone to avoid the damnation of hell, it is mandatory for everyone to change, to come to Jesus Christ. And that process in the scripture is called salvation, being born again. Jesus in John chapter 3 met Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very religious man. I'll guarantee you he was at the temple every Sabbath. He prayed three times a day. He did all, he crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, and Jesus looking right in the eye and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I want to tell you folks, religion does not save you. Only Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him will save us from our sins. So the process of salvation, we have a promise that we are going to become a new person. Now that doesn't mean that God is going to change you on the outside. That doesn't mean He will change you on the outside and and make you as good looking as I am. I had to put that in there, sorry folks. I'm kidding, you know. Well, maybe I'm not. I don't know. But again, that doesn't mean God changed on the outside, but it does mean that God will change us on the inside. From the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all Things are become new. So the moment we're saved, the moment we leave darkness and come to the light of Christ, that very moment we have a promise on a new lease for life. Thank you, Lord. What a promise we have. And when the Bible talks about a new creation, it's speaking about a fresh work of God. A work that brings forth a whole new substance. Thank God if you're born again, you are a new creature in Christ. A new creation. And that is the very heart of what it means to be a child of God. 
And being born again, being a child of God, is so much more than just a mental assent. It's so much more than agreeing to uh, who Jesus Christ is. The devil believes in him. It's more than acknowledging God. It's more than acknowledge Jesus Christ, his son. Because true Christianity always involves a life changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, you can talk about it all you want. If your life has not been changed, if you haven't had a living encounter with Christ, you are not born again. But here's the great news. Whenever we have that life changing encounter with Christ, we are made whole again. We are brand new Creatures in Christ. And that means that God has wiped out all of our past sins. And so when the Bible says the old has passed away, it's the promise of forgiveness, but it's also the promise that we are now set free from our past. How many know that today you got saved, God took your sins, and he removed them as far as the east is from the west? How many know the day you got saved? He took your sins and he cast them into the depths of the sea. I heard one preacher say he cast them in the depths of the sea and put a post with a sign, no fishing. <laughs> he cast them away from us. And here's the thing. When you're born again, when you have that encounter with Christ, God can change us so drastically from the inside out that we are no longer bound by our old patterns. We're not bound by our old sins. We're not bound by our own impulses. Because becoming and when we become a new creature in Christ, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're not capable of doing wrong anymore. But it does mean we have a new nature. We have a new power from God. And it does mean, even though I don't always please God, my heart says, I always want to please God. I want to do what's right. In the eyes of God. <laughs> because there's nothing wrong with living right. All that sin, that past in our life, is now covered with the blood of Christ. It is gone. And now Christ declares us righteous and he declares us holy. And my friend, that's the miracle of the new life in Christ. <clears throat> and the only way we're going to live right is to believe right. That involves knowing the Word of God. Knowing the Word of God. And as we begin to believe right, as we discover who we are in Christ, something we could never know before, and that is we begin to experience life to the fullness, and our life is going to continually become better and better and better. And I don't know about you, but I thank God every day I'm spiritually free. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I have been set free. And because I have, thanks to my faith in Christ and that alone, I don't want to live in the sins that used to be a part of my life. So that's what we've been doing here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Because Paul gives us a list of things. We read them earlier. That we are to mortify. Look again at the verse, chapter 3, verse 5. 
Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How many are thankful to be a part of the family of God? Amen. We're glad you're here this morning, but we're a local congregation. And local congregations are important. That's what Paul wrote to. Colossae was a local church. Philippi was a local church. But how many know that we just make up a small part of the whole body of Christ? And we need to understand every believer in Christ are united. Christ is a common denominator. And because of that, every believer ought to live their lives as though they are committed to Christ. If you're born again, you will do that. So Paul says, get rid of these things. Mortify them. We've covered quite a bit of ground. Let's, let's review real quick. Number one was fornication. Again, verse five, mortify fornication. That's any sexual misconduct, uh, any activity outside the marriage covenant. Number two, we looked at a few weeks back, was uncleanness. Again, verse uh, five, mortify uncleanness. That's all kinds of sin. It includes activity, any thought or word uh, that, do, that does not conform to the will of God for our life. Number three, in verse five, mortify in order affection. And that's any excessive passion we might have for anything or people that we put before God, whatever it is. Get rid of it, Paul said. Mortify it. Kill it. The fourth thing uh, we looked at last week was evil concupiscence, and that is evil desire, uh, wanting something that is sinister, uh, wanting something that is vile, that we might satisfy our own desires. And the last thing on Paul's lift in verse 5, he says, mortify covetousness. Covetousness. Mortify that. What does it mean? It means a relentless urge to get more for ourselves. A relentless urge to get more for ourselves. And that includes greed for satisfying evil desires. Uh, for everything, including sexual immorality. And this greed is described, Paul says, as idolatry. And the reason it is, is because it focuses on filling desires rather than focusing on God. And folks, if we're a child of God, our focus needs to be on God. Exodus 20, verse 17, look what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. <clears throat> How many ever heard or read, thou shall not covet? Amen. And any time you read the Ten Commandments in the Bible, it always ends with a prohibition against covetousness. And that's the desire to have the wealth or possessions of someone else. But let's take a closer look here. Because while Exodus twenty seventeen, without a doubt, forbids covetousness, it goes even farther than that. 
And what it does, it gives, an exa- it gives examples of things people might covet. Your neighbor's wife, their servant, their ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, so why does God do that? Why did God give those particulars? He did it so we can understand what God's intent was on why coveting something is a sin. The first thing he says, you should not covet your neighbor's wife. And one way to covet is through lust. And lust is a strong desire for something that God has forbidden. And whenever we covet the spouse of someone else, we are emotionally leaving the one we have pledged ourselves to. Look what Jesus says about that. But I say unto you, that whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now that's interesting. Because we may never touch the person we covet in an appropriate way. But in our hearts, we find ourselves desiring what is not ours. And Jesus says, if you lust on her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Anybody remember Jimmy Carter? I think he's the one that made that verse kind of stand out during his presidency. He made a comment about that. We won't go there today. And I want you to understand what Christ is saying to us. Without a doubt, the physical act of adultery has more devastating consequences in this life. And that's true. But the look of lust, and understand it, is equally as offensive to God. God says it is sin. There is no way we can love our neighbor at the same time we covet their spouse. First Peter 1, look at verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. And my friend, if you've experienced conversion, if you've been born again, your life has changed. And that transformation that Christ makes in our lives It involves an inward purity. It involves a holiness. And that's why the Bible says we're to love one another with a pure heart. And whenever we covet, it causes us to see our neighbors as rivals. It it creates a jealousy in our lives and envy. And the sad thing is, if we don't deal with it, it might eventually lead to acting out an inward sin. Yes, not Jesse, Jesse's gone this morning. Jason read from the book of James this morning. In chapter 1, look again at verse 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. 
Folks, do you understand? Do you understand how that inward sin, if not dealt with, will lead to death? It's also interesting, back in the verse 12, the Bible says that those who persevere temptation, those who overcome, are going to give life. Look what it says, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So if we allow sin to run its course in our life, the Bible says if we allow that to happen, when it's full-grown, when it becomes a fixed habit, it results in death. Spiritual death, and finally, physical death. And so here the word death is referring to spiritual death, which is spiritual separation from God. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I've got to tell you this morning, I'm glad for the gift. A wage is something you earn. And the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, first of all, worst of all, and certainly physical death. When we yield to temptation, when we give in, our sin sets deadly events into motion. It's like a snowball begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it leads to death. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Second one on that command is don't covet his male or female servant. Now, most of us don't deal with that in, in our social status. But in most cultures, if uh, you have a servant, it means you are doing well financially. And how many know, because we're humans, we are prone to comparison? And by the way, let me give you a good principle. It's not fair to compare, but we all do it. We judge our own success on how well we think we compare to somebody else. Now, modern day coveting might take this, picture this in your mind, keeping up with the Martins. <laughs> or the Joneses maybe, right? <laughs> or the Smiths. For example, Mrs. Sandy Grove, I'll pick on you for a minute, she enjoys her small home, doesn't mind the daily work it takes, but then she goes to see Mrs. Martin. <laughs> she got a maid, a cook, and a butler. Her home was spotless and, wow, dinner's superb. So Mrs. Grove goes home and she's dissatisfied with her own house now. She imagined, boy, if I, if I, how much life would be easier if I just had service like Mrs. Martin has. So all of a sudden Mrs. Grove decides, wow, I don't even like my recipes anymore. I gotta do laundry every day and, i got to answer my own door when the doorbell rings. Sandy, I'm warning you right now. That will lead 
to an ungrateful spirit and a lack of contentment. Now, by the way, I made all that up. That is not, none of that is true, but understand the illustration here, okay? Understand the illustration. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Luke 12 and verse 15, look at the warning Jesus gives. He said unto them, take heed and beware. Beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Friend, when will we learn that? Thou shalt not covet. Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servant. Here's one. When's the last time you covered your neighbor's ox or donkey? <laughs> but I know that God's word's contemporary, okay? Because in, in the time when scripture was written, when that took place, in ancient economies, uh, service animals would be a, a great representation of a man's livelihood. For example, you know about Job. Here's what the Bible says about him. Job 1 verse 3. Also his possession were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So this man was the greatest of all people of the East. So that was his portfolio. That indeed was his livelihood, and Job was the wealthiest man in the area because of the animals he had. So, you know, a man with several sturdy oxen could plow and harvest more crops. Uh, donkeys were pack animals. Uh, traders would use them. Merchants would use them. Um, uh, men with a lot of donkeys could do well. Uh, instead of have a car rental place, you had a donkey rental place. You could rent them out. Uh, you know, you had you, you could make a great uh, livelihood and bring in more money. And so, coveting work animals uh, was another uh, dissatisfaction with your own livelihood. You know, I can do better than this. And the attitude would create a resentment toward God and a jealousy toward their neighbor. Now, today, we probably won't cover an ox or a donkey. But we might say, how come they drive a car like that? How come uh, they get all the brakes? I mean, I work just as hard as they do. Um, wow. In fact, if I only had what they had, if I only had what he had, if I only had what she had, I'd be a lot better off. I could do better, too. Here's a, pro- here's a problem, folks. We cannot love and serve our neighbors if we are jealous of their lot in life. We cannot. Do not compare. Life is far more than the things we own. And I will guarantee you, I don't care who you are, when it comes down to your dying breath, you don't care about the money you saved up. All you're concerned about is your heart right with God. Am I going to make it to heaven? If you know Christ, you will. If you don't, you won't. So don't covet what your neighbor has. And by the way, if we find ourselves coveting someone else's livelihood, that can result in believing that God is not doing a good job in taking care of us. I mean, God, if you love me enough, you'd give me more or whatever. And we accuse him 
of being unfair because he's blessed somebody else different than he's blessed us, whatever it may be. So don't covet their wife. Don't covet their ox or donkey. Don't covet their servant. But in case you miss anything, God says, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so the, the command, thou shalt not covet, it covers all possessions. And that's why we must guard our hearts against slipping into coveting anything in any area. It is a dangerous place to live. It can lead to jealousy and resentment. If we allow it to carry on, it will, it will kill us spiritually. Most of you remember the king in the Old Testament by the name of Ahab. Ahab was uh, a king, but he was Jezebel's mouse. And Ahab had a neighbor named Naboth. And Naboth had a wonderful, wonderful vineyard. And Ahab, it was, it was right next to where the king lived. And Ahab wanted it. Look what it says, 1 Kings 21, verse 2. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give it, give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. I didn't take time to count them. You can do it later on. But we notice how many times Ahab used the word I and my. How many of us be coveting is all about? Here's a guy, king of Israel. Has everything he needs. And he sees this vineyard next door. Wasn't his. And he began to covet it. Now I can't imagine telling the king no. But if you know the story. Like a lot of husbands. He goes home and pouts. Got on his couch. Turned his back to the wall. Don't talk to me. Woe is me. And so. What began as coveting led to discontent, led to pouting, and finally it led to murder. When his wicked wife Jezebel seized the vineyard for Ahab and had Naboth killed. Folks, listen to me very carefully. Whenever we allow covetousness to have its way it will lead to greater evil let's look at the remedy 1 Timothy 6 look at verse 6 through 10 the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world 
And it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, that's clothing, let us be therewith content. Hold a minute. Anybody have breakfast this morning? Come on. I did. Well, I, I can see you got clothes on. <laughs> I'm glad you do. You'd be really glad I do. So we got food and clothing. So be content. Verse 9. But notice verse 9. But they that will be rich. Now think about this for a minute, folks. Not those that are rich, those who want to be rich. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all evil. Not money, the love of money. Which while some covered it after... They have erred from the faith and pierced them through with many sorrows. So what's the remedy? The remedy is knowing Jesus Christ. The remedy is living a godly life and being content. And my friend, I want to tell you today, God has been good to me. I have got everything I want Everything I need. And I want to tell you, God has been faithful all of these years. Somebody ought to say amen. He's always good. He always loves us. And he gives a command not to covet, not because he wants to put his thumb on us, but he gives that command for our own good. Because if we allow it to run its course, we will err from the faith and will be pierced through with many, many sorrows. And my friend, God has given me a joy unspeakable and full of glory today. Why? Because I've got godly contentment and my friend, that is great gain. See, here's the thing. We cannot be covetous. We cannot covet and be thankful at the same time. It doesn't work. Because when we covet, it will kill contentment. When we covet, it will kill our joy. When we covet, it will kill our peace. And my friend, I don't want to lose those things in my life. I don't want to lose them. So every day, if we can stay aware, continually aware of what God has done for us, why in the world, and and I'm guilty from time to time, folks, I, I hate to admit that, but it's true. Why do I focus on what I don't have rather than enjoying what I do have? Why am I trying to live for tomorrow rather than enjoying the day God has given me? Covenant will kill us that. It kills all of that. And so when we are living our lives every day aware of what God has done for us, aware of all the things that God has provided for us, if we live that way every day, it will safeguard our heart 
from coveting other things. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. I hope I don't have any moaners and groaners here this morning if you're a child of God. Folks, I want to tell you something today. If you're a child of God, we have a lot to give thanks for. Now remember, the Bible didn't say give thanks for things in those situations, in the good and the bad. Let's stand together. Five things in this particular text that Paul says we're to mortify. But you know the list is not inclusive because Paul was the same one who wrote Galatians. We read earlier about the 17 things. And Paul said, that's not all of them either. So my question, church, is this. Where are you at today? Are you deceiving yourself? you think you're saved? And I pray that you are, and I hope that you are. And you need the assurance of salvation. But if our lives are marked by these things, if we're caught up in sin, we're still living in darkness. And God has brought us to the light in Christ Jesus. And that's where we find it today. So how do you do that? Only by knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way. Get rid of the old life. Confess your sins. Agree with God. Repent. Turn away from those things. And make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For-